G'day and welcome to the fifth instalment of the All About Occupation series brought to you by the University of Brighton and Dr. Rebecca Quinley. Today we have the amazing Dr. Moses Ikugu bringing his presentation around understanding meaningful occupation and its healing qualities. So strap in and enjoy. G'day, my name's Brock Cook and welcome to Occupied. In this podcast, we're aiming to put the occupation in occupational therapy. We explore the people, topics, theories, and underpinnings that make this profession so incredible. If you're new here, you can find all of our previous episodes and resources at OccupiedPodcast.com. But for now, let's roll the episode. So, um, one of the areas that I've really been interested in is trying to understand this whole thing that we call meaning for occupation and why it is healing. And so I will share with you my journey through this inquiry. Uh, first of all, I will very quickly go over the background, you know, the history of the use of occupation in our profession and then where we are in the knowledge of this thing that we call occupation, and particularly the nature of meaning for occupations, and then where I come in, where I started wondering about meaningful occupations, whether they are the same as what we may call psychologically wanting occupations, and how occupations presumably heal, and then some application, including the research that we are doing right now that uh, Dr. Twinre has alluded to. So um, many of you know our history. You know that we've been engaged in uh, use of occupation for a long time, beginning a period that care of account the pre-paradigm period when there were some efforts to reform the mental health practice in Europe. Uh, we are all familiar with the work of Philippe Pinel in uh, France at Asylum d'Invisitri, who proposed that instead of, um, instead of putting people with mental health problems in chains, they could be unchained, set free, and then given daily typical activities as a way of calming them and getting them to heal. And then this work was continued by a Quaker in England by the name of William Took at the Yoko Asylum, who was uh, in independently trying out the same methods as Pinel in France. And then these ideas were borrowed by uh, some reformers in the United States. Uh, notable among them was Benjamin Rush, who was a, a physician in the US and uh, brought the mental, um, the, the moral treatment ideas or principles in the United States. And uh, 
many of you may or may not know that uh, Benjamin Rush was, was one of the signatories uh, in the declaration of independence uh, in the United States. And they thought again that uh, occupations were a good way of not only fixing the minds, but also distracting people uh, with the mental health problems from preoccupation with some of the dangerous and harmful thought processes. Now, in all these reforms, the war of the use of the idea of using occupation was really not very well uh, thought out. It was just um, from the experience of the practitioners that occupations seemed to work. They seemed to help people calm down. They seemed to heal, but exactly how this was happening, it was not clear. And this continued all the way through the introduction of the Hearts and the Crafts movement, which came out of uh, another British reformer by the name of William Morris, who emphasized the idea that people were healthier when they worked with their hands, when they connected with the environment through arts and crafts. And then uh, Raskin, who was a, a philosopher, popularized these ideas. And then some people here in the US copying those ideas and trying to use them as treatment. And then these ideas were again fresh out in the mental engine movement. And the whole idea was that uh, mental health can be viewed the same as physical health, just the same as in physical health, particularly public health, health we need uh, hygienic pra practices in order to stay healthy. They argued that even in mental health, it was necessary to practice healthy routines daily routines, daily occupational routines. And then these ideas culminated in, in the work of Jane Adams, who uh, ended up receiving a Nobel Prize. Adams was a social worker who was working in Chicago at uh, established the whole house in, in Chicago, which was devoted to helping poor migrants, particularly from Europe, and just to the life in the United States by using occupations that were used in Europe, kind of keeping them grounded through occupations. And then through this work, uh, a number of people were involved and the uh, particularly the influence of the American pragmatists and this influenced the work of a very well-known figure in occupational therapy by the name of Eleanor Clark Strago, who started developing habit training programs, which were mainly based on the work of uh, the American pragmatists, particularly the work of, uh, of uh, William James and his argument about the importance of good habits in setting up good health. And then there were a lot of other philosophers who also contributed to that work. So up to this point, occupations were the main 
vehicle of healing in occupational therapy, and this culminated in the founding of the National Society for the Promotion of Occupational Therapy in 1917, which was renamed in, in 1921 the American Occupational Therapy Association. However, uh, in the 1930s, we went through a crisis whereby the profession was challenged to demonstrate that there was a scientific basis in what we were doing. And because the really occupational therapist up to that point and did not really stop to think about what are these things we are calling occupations and how does occupational work, how does it heal? So this became a big challenge. And in order to prove that we were scientific, we started dropping the use of occupations and adopting other ways of practice that looked more like social work, like physical therapy, and like psychotherapy than occupational therapy. But then, of course, this created more problems because now we lost our professional identity, which led in 1961 to the famous uh, Slago lecture by Mary Riley, who argued that we needed to go back to occupation because that's what defined us, that's how we were founded. And she argued that actually occupation was one of the great ideas of 20th century medicine because the whole idea that a human being can heal themselves through the use of their own hands was a very novel idea. And we needed to go back to that because that was a very strong advance in medicine. So this, this is what uh, set up a series of events uh, in, in investigation of the nature of occupation leading us to where we are today. So the problem then is that up to this time, it seems that we were really not focused in uh, trying to have a scientific explanation of the mechanism by which occupations worked to heal. Uh, some some uh, scholars in occupational therapy trying to do this, for example, Trombley in 1995 gave a Slago lecture where she suggested that the way occupation healed is by promoting a sense of competency and a self-esteem. And so healing occupations need, needed to be purposeful or meaningful. Uh, at the time, purposefulness and the meaningfulness were not distinguished from each other. But if something was purposeful or meaningful, if it uh, helped someone develop a sense of competency and therefore self-esteem. And so this, is, this was the explanation of how occupation healed. And so other people started uh, working with those kinds of ideas. And uh, definitely we are familiar with the work of people such as Nelson and the Kerofna trying to link occupation with imbalance through uh, the use of time 
in fact, Kerofna, what we know now as the model of human occupation, or engineer, she um, proposed what he called the temporal adaptation theory of the using occupations, which then later developed into the model of human occupation. At the point, at, at this point, uh, occupational therapists throughout the world right now actually subscribe to the idea that participation in meaningful occupations is good for health and well-being. Now, the exact mechanism of how this does physiologically has not even been investigated uh, very well. There were some suggestions a while back that the way meaningful occupation works is that it uh, activates the reward neural pathways, and this is how it creates a sense of well-being. And so something meaningful is that kind of occupation that uh, activates these dopaminergic pathways in the brain. However, this is not the whole story. In fact, uh, the way I got where I am is that uh, I thought that maybe at this point with the development of technology, we should be able to test that theory. And so a number of uh, students um, working with the cognitive psychologists designed them to test that. And what we did was that uh, we and people identify personally meaning for occupations, and then uh, we and them participate in those occupations, and we and video recording recordings on the, of them participating in these occupations, and then we put them in uh, the magnet, you know, functional magnetic resonance imaging and they print those videos back to see whether the reward pathways, the dopaminergic pathways would be activated. Now, the whole idea behind playing a video is that uh, it's based on the theory, the mirror neuron theory, which says that there is a, a bunch of neurons in the brain that uh, basically interprets what we see other people doing or interprets images as if we are involved in the actions depicted in those images or that other people are doing. And therefore, by uh, the, the hypothesis was that by having people watch themselves doing things that are meaningful to them, the reward pathways would be activated. Uh, now, of course, we tested the protocol to make sure it worked. We, there are things that are known to activate the neural pathways, the, the, the reward pathways, uh, including things such as power, sex, money, beauty, and, and so forth. And we used uh, ones of association related to those themes 
and uh, we found that the protocol was working. However, when people watched themselves uh, participating in meaningful occupations, the reward pathways were not activated, which as you can imagine was very, um, was very frustrating and disappointing, particularly to students. But then when reviewing the work, we sat down and I told them, you know, this is not too bad because sometimes you discover things from what you don't find rather than what you find. Because maybe not all meaningful occupations are the same. Uh, for instance, let's think of one particular meaningful occupation that students are familiar with, studying. When you are studying, you are not likely to feel the high that causes a, a shot of dopamine because studying can be stressful. Now, when you are successful in your studies and you do that exam and you get an A, then you get that shot of dopamine, but not when you are doing it. So maybe a, a, a special kind of meaningful occupations that we Call, we can call psychological rewarding are the ones that activate the dopaminergic pathways. And so to test that, we didn't have enough money to put people in magnets again. So we decided to uh, have people using experience sampling method. We decided to have people report what they are doing and then respond to a questionnaire that asked how they felt, and another one that inquired about the meaning associated with occupation. And the idea was to find out whether there was a certain class of activities or occupations that were particularly associated with positive mood that uh, can be associated with activation of dopaminergic pathways. So what we found in a nutshell was that meaningful occupations in general have certain characteristics. And actually they line very well with uh, the definition of meaningfulness by Franco, that they tend to be creative. They tend to be, to promote connection with other people uh, through love, joy and so forth, they tend to be positive and they tend to be those things that help a person believe that they are contributing to a cause higher than th themselves. And so what we found was that such occupations tended to be physically engaging, they tended to be mentally challenging, and obviously they tend to, to be perceived to connect someone with other people. Now, this is not very surprising if you take the view that occupations actually are part and parcel of our evolution. Think about it, as human beings, we have evolutionarily been successful through physical activities that translate our minds into action 
that shapes the environment so that they, they can support us. And also being able to be part of a group of others so that you are protected. Those are things that have helped us survive. So it is not surprising that evolutionary, we have come to find those types of activities to be very meaningful. They are literally related to our survival as a species. Those that those occupations that we found that they were rewarding and therefore they are likely to activate the reward pathways have all those characteristics. They are, they are physically engaging, they are mentally engaging, they connect us with other people. In addition, though, we perceive them as fun and they are pretty much very close to what Sikisint Maya would define as creating a sense of flow. You know, when you're in, engaged in something that is so absorbing that you lose a sense of time, those are the kinds of things that ultimately tend to be associated with the positive mood and therefore we thought they can activate the reward pathways. Now, let's go to the mechanics of how this should work. We all know the, the physiology, the mechanics of stress. We perceive danger in our environment and therefore um, our, uh, our hypothalamus goes into action. It, uh, uh, creates, uh, it releases an hormone which goes on to stimulate the pituitary gland, which then um, releases another hormone that stimulates the adrenal glands. And the whole function of that is to create the circumstances for either um, fright, freeze, or fight. And so we are being prepared for action. We, we experience more blood being shunted into the deeper muscles. We breathe faster. Our heart rate goes up because we are getting ready for action. And the end product of all that process is cortisol, which is very well recognized as the uh, hormone of the primary hormone of stress. Now the problem with the cortisol is that it causes a lot of problems if it accumulates in the body. For one, it decreases sensitivity to glucose and therefore can lead to development of diabetes. It also crosses the brain uh, blunt uh, barrier and uh, therefore it can cause cognitive problems uh, particularly the hippocampus, which is um, associated with uh, creating new memories, tends to be vulnerable to cortisol and so forth. So long-term stress can cause both physical and, uh, and the cognitive problems. And so this is the mechanic. So when what happens is that when the dopaminergic pathway is uh, activated uh, through the 
the structures that are shown on this uh, slide, you have activation of the ventral tegmental area, the nucleus accumbens, and then the, the, there is a cascade of activity uh, going all the way to the frontal cortex. And uh, what this does is that it actually helps to create a breaking down of cortisol, and that is the healing part. And so the whole idea is that when people participate in occupations that are rewarding, then they activate those pathways that decreases the accumulation of the hormone of stress, particularly um, cortisol, and that is what creates healing and well-being. So that being the case, then we figure that, well, uh, we should be able to now create occupational therapy interventions that target those systems particularly. And so we argued that uh, if we use occupations that met both the characteristics of being meaningful and the psychologically, psychologically rewarding, and we use them as media in occupational therapy, then we should be able to see those healing effects. And so we create and guidelines for use of meaningful and psychologically rewarding occupations as media in OT, which includes, now uh, this slide is not very clear because of the, the image of the, of the flow diagram is not very good, but basically it begins with an interview to identify things that people do every day. And then we evaluate those activities to find what is most meaningful to the person. And then we also have people setting goals uh, that about the kind of um, future they want to achieve. And then we have them uh, setting goals about increasing participation in those occupations that are meaningful and psychologically rewarding so that they do it as a manner of routine, while also those activities also contribute to their overall more transcending kind of goals. And so we developed this, these guidelines and we uh, so the rest of the research that we've been doing today is to test these guidelines. In one study, which is not yet published, my colleagues and I tested the guidelines with the students, faculty, and the staff uh, at our university. It was a small sample, um, and we uh, it was a repeated measures in design. And uh, basically, we found that there was a main effect of interventions on perceived well-being and energy as measured on uh, short form 36. Short form 36 is uh, an assessment that is used by interdisciplinary professionals to assess health outcomes. So, that brings us to the current study, and I'm sorry, I have to, uh, I'm in my office, and, and if I sit too long, 
the lights go off, so I have to turn them back on. Sorry about that. Uh, so this brings us to our current standing. Um, we were able to join a team of other uh, researchers, um, basically computer scientists and, uh, and the material scientists. And this research was supported by NASA. And uh, so uh, the whole idea was that we need to find a way of keeping astronauts uh, healthy when they're in space. There are plans right now to, to send people to Mars, or originally it was by 2030. I'm not sure whether we're on the course of doing that yet, um, but that, that was the whole idea. Now, obviously, when people in space, it's a very hostile environment. Uh, it is um, both physically and mentally. You are in isolation. You are not in contact with anything familiar. And so it's a very stressful situation. And so um, my colleagues, the material scientists, uh, wanted to develop flexible sensors that astronauts can wear under their suits to, to collect health data. And then the computer scientists would, uh, would map the relays to help those data be transmitted uh, from state from space to a mainframe computer and then downloaded for analysis. And so my job then was to show how those data can be used to keep astronauts healthy. And so for our part of the research as the healthcare team was to see whether participation in self-identified meaningful and psychologically rewarding activities actually change the, the profile of stress biomarkers and the perception of stress as measured from a variety of instruments. And then to find out whether watching oneself on video and doing those activities produces the same effect. Because when you think about astronauts in space, they are not going to be able to participate in those occupations. So using the mirror neuron theory, the idea is that they can recon themselves participating in those occupations while we're on Earth. And then we have a protocol whereby while they're in space, they can regularly watch themselves doing those occupations as a way of keeping themselves healthy. And then using this data, we were then going to uh, recommend um, a protocol for preparation of astronauts. Uh, so that they can maintain well-being in space. So we designed our study. It's a randomized control trial uh, with repeated measures. Our goal was to recruit 60 incoming freshman students. The reason why we are having freshmen 
as participants in our study is because there are very few astronauts and the ones that are there are very busy preparing for the next mission. So we cannot really have access to them. So we thought that freshman students who are entering college actually can be good proxies for astronauts because they are like astronauts, they're in transition to a strange environment, they have a lot of stress and so forth. And so if our protocol can work on them, uh, there's a good case to be made that they, they can work with astronauts as well. Up to this point, we have been able to recruit a, a total of 22 students. The data that I present here uh, were from 20 students, uh, one man, 19 women. Uh, this semester, we earned two more students complete research activity. So we now have a total of 22, but we are aiming at recruiting 60 students um, when all is done, because our power analysis indicated that this is the number that would provide enough power to detect a medium effect of intervention. Uh, we are collecting data using a variety of methods. One of them is a short form 36, which I've already mentioned, and this measures self-perceived health in eight domains, physical functioning, low limitation due to physical health, low limitation due to emotional problems, and so forth. You can see those here. Then we also uh, use the Warwick Endenberg Mental Wellbeing Scale to assess overall well-being. I don't know whether some of you have used this uh, scale. It's a 14 item like a type, question, type questionnaire where there are statements about uh, general sense of well-being and then people rate the extent to which they agree with those statements um, on a scale from one to, 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 to five. So um, the total score can be anything from 14 to 70. Higher scores, of course, indicate more positive feelings and the thoughts about oneself. We also collect uh, physical data, heart rate, blood pressure, and the sleep quality using a smart um, bracelet. And uh, this is linked to the iPhone and uh, the participants upload this data into their, into their um, iPhone or, or smartphone that they have, and then they send the data to me in daily. We then use the Meaningful and Psychological Rewarding Occupation Rating Scale, which was developed with our guidelines to help people identify the most meaningful and the most psychologically rewarding occupations uh, in their life. And uh, then we have the emotional regulation questionnaire, and this is an instrument that is used to assess how people deal with the emotions. 
And there are two variables that are measured using this instrument, the emotional appraisal and the emotional suppression. Now, high emotional appraisal uh, scores indicate emotional health because obviously it's uh, going to reframe our thinking in order suppressing our emotions as a way of coping. So our, our hope is that through our intervention, we will see an increase in emotional appraisal and a decrease in emotional repression. And then we also collect saliva samples and we send them for to the lab for analysis. And this is to track changes in the cortisol levels over the time they're in the research project. This is basically an explanation of the design. It's a five week protocol. We start with a pretest and then you have an experimental and control group. So uh, the first week there is there are no activities. And then at the end of the first week, the participants in the experimental group uh, helped to identify meaningful and psychologically rewarding occupations. And then we making goals with them for performance of those occupations. The next week, they are asked to perform those occupations regularly. And then we record them participating in uh, in that occupation, at least on one occasion. And then uh, the third week, uh, we actually ask the people in the control group to watch them to, to record meaningful occupations, to perform meaningful occupations, and we record them. Those in the experimental group, they just watch themselves on video. And then the final week, there's no intervention on the experimental group, but we have people in the control group watching themselves on video. And then one week later, it's a post-test. So, so far we have collected data, as I mentioned, uh, from 22 participants. The data analyzed here are from 20 participants and we used a number of statistical procedures to analyze the data. But basically, so far, what we have found is that there is uh, an effect of intervention on emotional appraisal. Um, now, there is no interaction between time and the group, which is, uh, says that actually non-group changed uh, more than the other, significantly more than the other, when compared on this variable over time. However, if you look at the scores, you will see that for both in groups, actually the experimental group emotional appraisal scores changed more than those in the control group. Because here we have uh, roughly uh, 3.7 points. That is the change over the five weeks while for the uh, control group is 3.1 points. So obviously there is something happening there, but uh, probably we don't yet have enough power to, to pick the differences in change over time. 
there was also a significant difference between the experimental and the control group on emotional well-being uh, as measured on warwick Endenberg uh, scale um, at when we measured um, the variable at post-test four. And of course, then after that, the two groups, uh, the performance on this variable became equal after that. Now, what is important to note is that actually at post-test four, basically the experimental group and the complete and all the activities and then the control group was about to engage on watching themselves on video, performing meaningful occupations. There was also a statistically significant difference in uh, diastolic pressure between the experimental and control group. Now again, the change seems to, seemed to favor the control group and uh, we don't yet know quite why. So this is one of the things we have to watch more closely and see what is happening. Now, overall, though, uh, our summation is that there was an, an effect of intervention on emotional appraisal. There was a, an effect on emotional well-being overall, and there was an, an effect on brand pressure. We are, so overall, we can see that there were some differences between groups, beginning at post-test two and going forward. Now this this is where the differences start appearing after the participants in the experimental group have already started participating in occupations they perceive as meaningful and rewarding. What we can say is that the overall effect of intervention on emotional appraisal is encouraging because really that is one way, that is one indicator that this protocol uh, as a way of improving uh, well-being. Because if people are having emotional appraisal or, or they, are, they are being better at emotional appraisal, that means they are likely to stay out. This is especially uh, important for astronauts uh, because, and I have a quote here from a Soviet co cosmonaut who wrote in his diary that all the conditions necessary for Manda are met if you shut two people in a cabin, cabin measuring 18 feet by 20 feet and leaving them together for two months. Um, this is particularly important because uh, if, if we are improving emotional appraisal, that would be good for these astronauts. Because now here we are talking about people being in this small space for uh, at, the, at the present time, it takes about six months to get to, to Mars. 
that's a long time to be cooked up with a small group of people. And so emotionally appraisal would be a very good tool to help people stay well functioning together. So this is where we are. The trends indicate that there is value of this intervention um, on improving student emotional well-being, and by extension, perhaps also it can have uh, an emotional well-being of astronauts. But obviously, we are collecting more data, and we need to collect more data. Now, for future research, one of the things we may want to look at is the fact that uh, now we mentioned the difference between meaningful occupations in general and the psychological rewarding occupations in general. Now, one way of explaining this is that occupations, as we have said, are meaningful because they provide us with an evolutionary advantage. That's their value. That's why we find them meaningful. But they may actually not be psychologically uplifting at the moment we are performing them. But once we get the results we want, we can imagine the psychological high that we get, like in getting uh, a good result in an important exam. So one way of testing this would be to ask people to imagine the result of their current activity and then put them in the, in the magnet fMRI while they are imagining this status and they see whether this image actually leads to activation of the dopaminergic pathways. Another possible investigation would be to analyze self-identified meaning for occupations and see whether we can, we can identify common characteristics that may have a theme of providing uh, evolutionary advantage. So this is just a couple of uh, ideas for future research to clarify how uh, occupation works to heal. But there are many, many more questions that we can ask along these lines. Bottom line is that we need to create a science that explains how occupations work because it's okay to say they work because the statistics say that they work, but I don't think that is enough. I think the next stage is to say exactly, uh, exactly what is the mechanism by which these occupations work. I think that is the next stage in our development as a scientific discipline. If you liked this episode and want to check out more, head over to OccupiedPodcast.com or search Occupied Podcast in your favorite podcasting app. If you have thoughts or reflections on the topics discussed today, please do get in contact. We'd love to hear from you. And lastly, if you got some value from this and you want to help us out, like, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Remember, be good to yourself. 
be good to others, and always keep occupied.